0: At the Passover festival, it was Pilate's regular practice to release a prisoner to the people, anyone for whom they asked. So the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to follow his custom. He answered them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he realized it was out of jealousy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead a man who was in prison for insurrection and for murder. Pilate spoke to the crowd again. Then what do you wish me to do with the man you call the King of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him! And when Pilate asked them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Crucify him! So Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away inside the palace, and they called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in a purple cloak, and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. And they began saluting him, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck his head with a reed, spat upon him, and they knelt down in homage to him. After mocking him, they stripped him of his purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. As they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. And they laid the cross on him and made, it carry, made him carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus. Turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never gave suck. When they be- then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do this when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others also, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him, and when they came to the place which is called the Skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do.
1: Heavenly Creator, we find the story of this day unbearable. It is bad enough that Jesus of Nazareth should have been put to death on a cross, but we realize that this was not so much the act of especially wicked people as the awful result of ordinary human attitudes. Jesus made himself open to others in love, and we know how often we fail to do that. This day's story is unbearable indeed to all except yourself. At this, we marvel that your love is great enough to take the relentless hurt of all human wrongs. Holy One, shock and save us. Drive us deep into our longing for your kingdom until we seek it first for the hungry and the sick and the poor of your children, for prisoners of conscience around the world, for those we have wasted with, on our, wasted with our racism and sexism and ageism and nationalism and religionism, for those around his, this Mother Earth and in this city who, this Friday, know far more of bigotry and terror than of goodness, that through seeking first your kingdom, for them as well as for (coughs) ourselves, we may experience the peace of your presence. And finally, help us to remember your promise that...
2: scorn they shoot out their lips and shake their heads no more
3: The soldiers cast lots to divide Jesus' clothing, and the people stood by, watching. But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews." One of the criminals who were hanged there with Jesus kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise.
4: As the Roman governor, Pilate had the last word. He could have saved Jesus if he wanted to. All the indications are that for various reasons, that's what Pilate would like to have done. In the first place, after personally interrogating Jesus, he decided that no wrong had been done and said so. I find no crime in this man, he told the chief priests period. Maybe the man had committed some religious faux pas in their eyes, but the religion of the Jews was nothing to Pilate. He couldn't have cared less. In fact, as a sophisticated Roman, religion in general was not his cup of tea. He'd been quite frank about it to Jesus himself during their interview. When Jesus told him he'd come to bear witness to the truth, Pilate's reply was, "'What is truth?' Truth was for people who had time to worry about truth and Pilate was a busy man. In the second place, on the basis of a troubling dream she had had, Pilate's wife begged him to have nothing to do with that righteous man. And that gave Pilate pause. In the third place, his main job as a colonial administrator was to keep peace in the colonies at any price. The last thing he wanted to do was stir up a hornet's nest by making a martyr out of some local hero. Nevertheless, when it became clear that he would stir up an even nastier hornet's nest by setting Jesus free, and when, in addition to that, the Jews pointed out that no true friend of Caesar's would ever be soft on a man who had set set himself up as a king to rival Caesar, (laughs) Pilate prudently gave in to the pressures and said to go ahead and crucify him if that's really what they had their hearts set on. To make it perfectly clear that he wanted no part in the dirty business, he said, I am innocent of this man's blood and as a dramatic gesture that not even the dullest colonial clod among them could fail to understand, stepped out in front of the crowd and went through a ritual hand-washing in a basin of water he had them fill especially for that purpose. In a sense, Pilate was right. Insofar as he'd done all he reasonably could do to save the man, even offering to let them crucify Barnabas instead, even if it was just to show what they were after, he was, in a manner of speaking, innocent. The crucifixion took place against his advice and against his better judgment. In this connection, you can't help thinking about that other famous hand washer, Lady Macbeth. Unlike Pilate, Lady Macbeth had committed murder herself, and she kept trying to wash away that thing in her sleep long after her hands themselves were clean as a whistle, and her tormenting sense of guilt was over the terrible thing she had done. Pilate's case is different and worse. For him, it was not so much the terrible thing he'd done as the wonderful thing he'd proved incapable of doing. He could have stuck to his guns and resisted the pressure and told the chief priests to go to hell. He could have spared the man's life. Or if that is asking too much, he could have spared him at least the scourging and catcalls and the appalling way he died. Or if that is still asking too much, he could have spoken some word of comfort when there was nobody else in the world with either the chance or the courage to speak it. He could have shaken his hand He could have said goodbye. He could have made some gesture, which even though it would have made no ultimate difference, to him would have made all the difference. But Pilate didn't do it. He didn't do it. And on that basis alone, you can almost believe the sad old legend is true. That again and again, Pilate's body rises to the surface of a mountain lake and goes through the motion of washing its hands as he tries to cleanse himself. Not of something he'd done for which God could forgive him, but of something he might have done but hadn't for which he could never forgive himself.
5: The time their 12 year old got lost in Jerusalem and they finally found him in the temple, Mary said, behold thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And as things turned out, it was a shadow of things to come. It's not hard to imagine her sorrowing again when Jesus left, for, left a good steady job in Nazareth to risk his neck wandering around all over creation, to proclaim whatever it was he thought he was proclaiming. Part of her sorrow was presumably that she loved him too much for himself instead of for the wild and holy business he thought he'd been called to. Another part must have been that like just about everyone else who was closest to him in Nazareth, She never really understood what he thought he was doing and may well have been one of the ones who, when he went back home once, decided he must be off his rocker. He is beside himself, they said, and tried to lock him up for his own good. Maybe some of the things he said to her didn't sound as bad in Aramaic as they do in English, but even so, She can't have been too happy about the time she told him the wine was running out at the wedding in Cana. And he said, woman, what have you to do with me? Or the time they came and told him his mother was waiting outside for him and he said, who is my mother? Adding that whoever did the will of his father who was in heaven, that was who his mother was for all the sentimentalizing that their relationship has come in for since, there's no place in the gospels where he speaks some special loving word or does some special loving thing for the woman who gave him birth. You get the idea that he felt he couldn't truly belong to anybody unless he belonged equally to everybody. They were all his mothers, and brothers, and sisters. And there's no place in the record where he offers her anything more than he offered everyone else. No place that is, except at the very end. When cross-eyed with pain, he looked down from where they had nailed him, and again said something just for her. Even here, he didn't call her his mother, just woman and he didn't say goodbye to her or anything like that but it's as if here at last he finally spoke to the awful need he must have always sensed in her behold your son he said indicating the disciple who was standing beside her and then to the disciple behold your mother It was his going away present to her, somebody to be the son to her that he had had no way of being himself, what with a world to save and a death to die. He would be present in that disciple, he seemed to be saying, for her to live for and to live for her. Beyond that, He would be present in generation after generation for her to mother. The Mater Dolorosa who seeks him always and sorrowing everywhere she goes.
6: When life is ugly and horrific, why is heaven silent? When the pain of the world seems so great that our own hearts will break as we witness it, why is there nothing spoken by God? I've heard these questions in many places, hospital rooms, church hallways, coffee shops, and there are no answers. I was on a mission trip in South Africa a few years ago. We were there to build an AIDS hospice. Before the hospice was built though, we met several of the patients, ones who had moved in when the building was complete. One of them was a little boy named Patrick, five years old, might have weighed 30 pounds. He had never walked, he'd never spoken, he'd never smiled. As I stood there greeting him, touching his face, holding his limp hand, the silent question in my mind was, God, what do you say here? Why are there no words? There must be something. Two days later, Patrick was dead. And the question remained. We pause in the church on Good Friday to gaze at the cross, to see the one that we named Lord and Savior now dying, homeless, abandoned, forgotten. And the question remains, why is God silent? You see, because what we learn on this day is that what we believed and hoped about God is not true. We grow up learning and hoping that if you do the right things and live the right way and act a certain way and give your heart and love to each other and to the world, then, then God will bless us. But this one came and did nothing but love, and he is crucified. Killed. Murdered. For nothing. For nothing. Barbara Brown Taylor, the great preacher, says, Here's God's chosen one, God's beloved, and he is forsaken as any heretic. Friends gone, future gone, God gone, for all we can tell. There's nothing but silence. If you've read Mark's gospel and read through his story, you know that in the, in the moment before the cross, Jesus begs, begs God for another way. When his body is hanging on that cross, when his life is slipping away from him, he cries out to heaven, my God, my God, why? Silence. Nothing but silence. We know the scene though. We see it over and over again played out in our world. Go to Afghanistan and ask why. Go to Syria where babies are being bombed and killed and ask why. Go to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida where 17 were murdered in an everyday activity at school. And right above that scene, this is Golgotha. This is Good Friday. We've seen this story too many times. I used to lead a group called the Biblical Storytellers. They would study the text coming up for the sermon and would memorize the stories, would tell them then in worship One year for Good Friday, we decided to tell Mark's gospel for the entire service. And as we were learning the story, a woman interrupted and said, it's almost as though, it's almost as though the questions are there hanging above the text, asking why, where is God, what is happening, how can this be, can you feel them, she said, can you see them hanging there above our heads as we try to tell this story? She said, you know, I've gotta be clear though, I don't really understand Easter. I get Good Friday. I've seen it. I've seen it too many times. It's not hard to believe. It's Barbara Brown Taylor who says we spend much of our lives at the foot of the cross. Waiting for a word from God. So where is God now? Will the silence be broken? I remember the first time those questions formed in in my mind. They came on Easter Sunday in 1968. I was nine years old. I was baptized that day. The church I grew up in uh, practiced baptism of adults. I was hardly one at nine but I wanted to be baptized, and so I was. And I expected to have some spiritual experience in that, in that church. Once you were baptized, you could move from children's church to the adult church. And I was so excited to sit on the front row and be in the worship service with all the other adults for the first time. And I remember when my father, who was the pastor, began to pray. I opened my eyes. I half expected, I wanted to see God. I thought God for sure would be wandering among the folks. Of course, God was not there. Every eye was closed, and then I looked at my father. his prayer was about the resurrection, but there was something in his face. There was some anguish playing on his face. His his hands were tightly clenched together, and, and it was as though he was wrestling with some demon or some unseen reality that was fighting with his very soul. And I remember thinking as a little boy that I was worried about my daddy. What's wrong with my daddy? Why is my daddy worried? Why is he in pain? He seems so upset. Years later, as an adult, I have a much better idea now of what the demon was, of where the pain came from. But I'll never forget what it felt like to ask, God, what's wrong with my daddy? And to hear nothing. Nothing. All I could do was watch. All I could do was wonder, worry, and weep. That's what we do on Good Friday. All we can do is watch and wonder and weep. All we can do is stand there. To explain it is to miss it. To experience it is to understand it. We are not asked to do anything on this day except to suffer with God.
3: It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon while the sunlight failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. So Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn in the rock." He then rolled a great stone to the door of the tomb and went away.
6: My dear friends, we leave in the shadow of death, but this is not the end of the story. This is not the end. Amen.